This is Something for the Pain, a podcast produced by Project Echo Idaho, made for Idaho's healthcare professionals working to prevent, treat, and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders throughout the GEM state. I'm your host, Sam Steffen. Well, the E stands for extensions, looking where we aim to be. CH is for community health care, the welfare of you and me. O is for the outcomes, that's the story we can tell. ECHO all together, well, you know what that spells. Echo Today's episode features a presentation by Dr. Nicole Fox, psychiatrist at St. Luke's Health System in Boise, on the topic of marijuana use in the perinatal period. This lecture was recorded on July 14, 2021, as a part of Echo Idaho's Perinatal Substance Use Disorder series. Here to introduce today's presenter is Echo Idaho's former director and session facilitator, Lachelle Smith. Welcome to Echo Idaho Perinatal Substance Use Disorder. I'm Lachelle Smith. Um, we'll facilitate the conversation today. We're really pleased to have um, Echo panelist Dr. Nicole Fox, who is also the Associate System Medical Director of Behavioral Health at St. Luke's Health System, give the talk today about marijuana use in the perinatal period. Dr. Fox, the floor is yours. Awesome. Hello, I'm Nicole Fox at St. Luke's. I see patients here at the main hospital. So today we're going to talk about perinatal marijuana use. So I'll just define the perinatal period. Um, When we talk about perinatal, we are talking about the time around pregnancy. So that could be during the pregnancy and after the birth. So there are lots of opinions out there about marijuana and its safety or its relative safety. Certainly, if you're a child of the 70s, 80s, the idea that marijuana was sort of ubiquitous everywhere, not a big deal, safe, was really out there. Lots of magazine articles and kind of pop culture that kind of is the cultural foundation, at least, I think, that's helped us get to where we are today. And in fact, the marijuana today is not the same marijuana of the 60s and the 70s and the 80s or even the 90s, where, you know, high school and college students could just buy a little bag of floor sweepings, essentially, and um, not a big deal for many people. Uh, the marijuana today is, has a much higher THC concentration, and yet we're still, as a culture, viewing marijuana from a lens of the past and what the product was like then. So these headlines, for example, Rolling Stone magazine, uh, weed and pregnancy, how cannabis laws are hurting mothers. And this from the Atlantic, is it okay to smoke pot during pregnancy? So that's what we're going to talk about today. We'll talk a little bit about the epidemiology, um, why people use marijuana, a little bit about marijuana. We'll talk about what cannabinoids are. We'll have some caveats to the conversation. We'll talk about associations of marijuana with gestation and development of the fetus. We'll talk about marijuana with breastfeeding and then a little bit about how to discuss marijuana use with patients. So as of the beginning of last year, 33 states plus DC had legalized medical marijuana. 10 states had legal recreational use. 
The CDC estimates that about 16% of pregnant women ages 18 to 44 use marijuana or smoke marijuana daily. They may eat it as edibles. The data points toward an increased risk of miscarriage, birth defects, and developmental delay. And we'll talk more about that specifically and um, some of the pros and cons with these types of studies. So why might a pregnant woman or another person use marijuana? So again, there is a pretty wide cultural belief that it is benign, meaning not harmful. It's fun. In social settings, you could smoke some weed with your friends or eat a weed brownie or cookie. Um, It's part of the social scene for many people, just like having a beer is. Some folks smoke marijuana or consume edibles to alleviate psychiatric symptoms like depression, anxiety, and insomnia. I've had many patients tell me that the only thing that helps them sleep is smoking marijuana. I've had other patients tell me that the only thing that helps them focus to study is having an edible. Other folks have said that nothing works for their anxiety like marijuana. So different people will smoke or consume marijuana for different reasons. People will often believe that this is a safer option than serotonin medications like Prozac or Zoloft. And those are medications that we often prescribe for anxiety as well as depression or PTSD symptoms. And you may hear your patient say, well, I don't want to take chemicals like Zoloft or sertraline or fluoxetine as Prozac. I don't want to take sertraline. I don't want to put chemicals in my body when I'm pregnant because it's not safe for the baby. I think marijuana is safer because it is natural and it can be grown like a houseplant. And so it seems on the surface to patients that this is a more natural substance. And so if it's more natural, it's more acceptable. I'll also point out that arsenic is a naturally occurring substance. I would not recommend anyone consume it. So the argument that something is natural or organic does not compel me as a physician to think something is automatically safer than something that is manufactured. And then folks, of course, um, we all have heard about marijuana, medical marijuana use in patients who are receiving treatment for cancer and that it can really help with nausea and vomiting. And so um, likewise, marijuana can be helpful for morning sickness. So here is a primer for the uninitiated into marijuana use and dosing. So marijuana is typically inhaled, that's smoked or vaped, or ingested as an edible. Delta-9 THC is the primary psychoactive component of marijuana. THC levels in marijuana are 25 times that of the 1970s. So what happens when you inhale it? When you inhale marijuana, you get a rapid distribution of the THC, the Delta 9 THC, into the bloodstream and um, an onset pretty quickly of effects. The dose does vary with the strain of marijuana you're consuming. 
the number of inhalations, the volume, your lung capacity, even in the depth of your inhalation. Compare that to ingestion. So ingestion of marijuana gives you, this is, you know, you eat the cookie, you eat the brownie or other edible product, the candy, they come in caramels. You get a much slower onset of physiologic effects due to the first pass metabolism. And what that means is, so first pass metabolism can be thought of in terms of bioavailability. When you inject a medication like Ativan, it goes straight to the bloodstream. And so that is 100% bioavailable compared to someone taking oral Ativan that has to go through the digestive tract in order to get into the bloodstream, making it 90% bioavailable. Ativan in particular is pretty close in bioavailability. You don't lose a lot to digestion. But what happens with things that we digest compared to things we inhale or things that we um, inject are that we slow down the absorption to the bloodstream. So someone may not think they're having any effect. So if I smoke marijuana, I'm going to feel high really quickly. I smoke crack cocaine, I'm going to feel high really quickly. And of course, those are totally different uh, drugs and do very different things. But for example, if I ate cocaine or if I ate marijuana, I'm going to have a lot slower onset of effects. Why this is a challenge to patients and we have to watch out for and warn our patients against is that people will not think they're getting high and they'll eat more. So rather than eating a quarter of a pot brownie, they may eat a pot brownie, not feel anything in 10 minutes. Maybe they're used to smoking it and they're like, oh, nothing's happening. So I'm going to eat more. Okay, nothing's happening. And you've got a half hour has gone by and they've eaten two pot brownies because nothing's happened. And then they're actually very high when the effects hit them because they've consumed so much. And so if you have a patient who is uh, smokes marijuana or dabbles in consumables, you want to warn them that the onset is much later when you ingest a product. And so if they ingest the product, uh, they need to wait 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour even before they're going to feel the sensation uh, and not assume that they're not getting any sensation and uh, take more. It is easier to measure the dose when it's marijuana is consumed. So you've heard this, there's different strains. One person might like this kind of medication. Another person might like this kind of medication. And I'm using the terminology that you'll hear out in the street. And among those who do ingest or smoke marijuana, people will call it medicine. They'll call it their medicine. Um, there are two strains here. We have a sativa and indica. They look different. The um, classic green leaf of sativa is what comes to mind when you think of marijuana. And really, people will choose different formulations of marijuana for their effects. So if you go into a smoke shop and you want to purchase marijuana, you will be given a menu. And the menu will show sativa and it will show indica. Someone who wants to feel that kind of euphoric feeling, become more creative and sociable and energetic. Uh, the folks who say that they want to be more focused might choose sativa. Folks who want to feel more mellow, less anxious might choose indica. 
and then there are the hybrid strains. So the metabolism of THC. So THC has a half-life of about eight days in fat. It's highly lipophilic, meaning it loves fat. You know what else is really lipophilic is the brain. That's why it's psychoactive, because uh, things that are lipophilic can get into the brain. So it's detected in the bloodstream for 30 days. Once circulating, it does easily cross the blood-brain barrier, like I mentioned, and the placenta. Um, the brain is about 60% fat. One study found THC in fetal blood about 15 minutes after um, the mother consumed marijuana. At three hours, um, THC levels of mother and fetus were at equilibrium, meaning the same level. Uh, maternal tissue can act as a THC reserve, a reservoir, if you will, and supply THC to fetal circulation after consumption. So what are cannabinoids? So endogenous cannabinoids, endogenous means we have them, we make them. Um, these are neurotransmitters that are produced in the body, which bind to a cannabinoid receptor in the brain, immune system, gonads, and elsewhere. Anandamide is a prototypical endogenous cannabinoid. The exogenous cannabinoid, something from the outside, not made by us, the most notable is the phyto, phyto meaning plant, uh, cannabinoid um, THC. It's the delta THC. So we make our own cannabinoid and we can consume cannabinoid from a plant source. So cannabinoids act on two main types of what are called G-coupled protein receptors, uh, CB1 and CB2, cannabinoid 1 and 2. Uh, cannabinoid 1 receptors are highly expressed in the brain and the gonads, the testes and the ovaries. CB2 receptors are found more prominently in the immune and neuronal cells. Endogenous, meaning our own, cannabinoids interact with those receptors that tightly regulate elements of gestation and development. Exogenous cannabinoids are likely partial agonists uh, whose binding may have adverse downstream effects. So here comes the key question that your patient will say, if cannabinoids are naturally occurring, how can they lead to adverse effects? It's a great question, very insightful. Um, so endogenous production of cannabinoids is regulated and limited. Your body self-regulates. Dosing of exogenous external cannabinoids is additive to the physiologic levels and can overwhelm the system that is normally closely regulated. So some potential concerns, and I say potentials because these are things that are very difficult to study. Potential concerns for exogenous cannabinoid are we could cause or contribute to pre-implantation problems, implantation problems, and embryonic development problems. Let's see what those might look like. Oh, and our caveat is that studying marijuana use during pregnancy is very difficult. Older data is generally less reliable due to lower potency of marijuana in the past. We do not and cannot complete randomized trials in pregnant women. We use animal models and then we extrapolate. So that's imperfect, but it's the best we have. And so given the imperfect data, the safest bet is to advise against marijuana use in pregnancy or at minimum to take a harm reduction model. So this is a 
from the grasses and always greener, the effects of cannabis on embryological development. So it overviews the cannabinoid action on fetal developmental mechanisms and its proposed mechanisms through which cannabis can affect embryological fetal development. So we see that we may have some impairment of fallopian motility. We may have an ectopic pregnancy, a non-hatched or non-viable embryo, uh, decreased uterine receptivity, even spontaneous abortion. These are some of the barriers to successful implantation that could theoretically be caused by overwhelming the cannabinoid system with exogenous cannabinoids. So um, basically, we have the CB1 and 2 receptors present in the female reproductive system. Um, These receptors are activated by those endogenous cannabinoids. Inhibition can be overactivated by excess, and we have a dose-dependent increased signaling associated with those elements that I pointed out. What can happen during implantation? We might have a delayed transport causing that ectopic pregnancy. And again, these are the same things we just mentioned that we have found this relationship with ectopic pregnancies where the anandamide levels in women in ectopic pregnancies are found to be higher than in controls with uterine pregnancies. We may also see that uterine implantation may fail when blastocysts are exposed to higher cannabinoid signaling levels. And the blastocyst is just their very early cells. So effects of exogenous cannabinoids on folic acid. So we typically need folic acid during pregnancy from our diet or supplements. This is needed for normal development and growth of the embryo and the placenta. It's vital to DNA replication in dividing cells. THC can interfere with fetal folic acid uptake from the mother. And of course, we know when our patients are pregnant, we recommend folic acid because a deficiency is associated with low birth weight and neural tube defects. So We don't want something in our system that will interfere with that uptake of the folic acid. A moment about some cellular growth factors. So cannabinoid signaling is involved with the modulation of cell growth and blood vessel development, also called angiogenesis. The one really important growth factor is called VEGF. And that is, that's the most important factor in blood vessel development. Increased cannabinoid signaling reduces the VEGF expression in a dose and time dependent manner. But if we're going to be able to explain to our patients who are very bought into their marijuana use, we need a little bit of a background to, of understanding. So not that we all need to memorize this. Decreased VEGF decreases the regulation of vessel growth and excess cannabinoid exposure can induce apoptosis, which is planned cell death across cell lines. So talking about neuronal development briefly, cannabinoids act on CB1, the cannabinoid receptor in the developing brain, and To make a long story short, may lead to impacts on learning, memory, and other developmental processes like limb growth, but this is an area that needs a lot more study to firmly say Um, marijuana would have an impact other than on the folic acid uptake. 
So breastfeeding, what happens with marijuana use in breastfeeding? So we do detect THC in breast milk between uh, six days all the way to six weeks from consumption. One study estimated that about 2.5% of THC doses ingested uh, by the baby through the breast milk. There's a possible association with motor development with daily use. The newborn period is just a time of rapid development and we don't want to impact the cognitive function negatively. And then there is a concern that cannabinoids may actually decrease milk production and the quality of the milk. So the conclusions from the literature, endogenous cannabinoids play a key regulatory role in many processes of embryonic growth and development. Excess cannabinoid, either endogenous or exogenous, can disrupt homeostasis. The disruption to a tightly controlled process can lead to adverse outcomes. We need more studies. These are very hard to do in pregnancy. So when you discuss the risk versus benefit with your patient, no, there's definitely not a benefit found to smoking marijuana or ingesting marijuana in pregnancy or during breastfeeding. How do you discuss the marijuana use in pregnancy? So just like we do with all things in our patients, we want to approach them with curiosity and not judgment. So what do you like about marijuana? Um, what does it help you with? Do you have any worries about it? And you can ask them, what symptoms are you trying to manage with it? Do you find it helps your sleep or your anxiety? What else has helped? And then you can invite questions. Are there things that you've heard that you wanted to ask me about related to marijuana and pregnancy? Can I offer you any resources? And then offer. Uh, we want to give them a combination of science and normalization. Because if we don't normalize, we come across as judgy or elitist. So this is how you normalize it. Some moms have asked me if ingesting uh, edibles is risky to the baby during pregnancy. You know, some recent studies have actually surprised us. We thought it was safe, but it turns out there could be some adverse effects. And here are some that are starting to emerge. But there's more study needed, so we don't know, um, we can't say definitively that something would go wrong. We just know there's no real advantage. So, and you can practice that with your peers. Um, if you have a population that is consuming a fair amount of marijuana in pregnancy. Um, but really, I do encourage you to normalize uh, that other women have questions, other women smoke marijuana or eat consumables and, uh, make the space between you and your patient one of openness and not judgment. After an echo session didactic presentation like we just heard from Dr. Fox, we opened the floor to all attendees that zoomed in to participate in that day's Echo Idaho session. We'll now hear some highlights from that conversation, including three of the Perinatal Substance Use Disorder Series panelists, Stacy Seib, Jerry Woodworth, and Larissa Janishek. What thoughts, questions, or reflections do folks have? Uh, Dr. Fox, you brought up a harm using a harm reduction model. This is Stacy Seib speaking here, maternal fetal medicine physician at St. Luke's Health System in Boise. 
And because we, we know we all have these patients who may or may not, you know, be able to abstain during the pregnancy. What does that harm reduction model look like to you for marijuana and THC product use? Yeah. So harm reduction model refers to, it is literally what it says, the harm, trying to reduce harm um, through typically reducing a use. So when you have someone um, who's a drinker, um, we often think that they've got to go to AA and do the 12 steps and not and completely abstain. And that works for some people. Other people are quite capable of reducing their use. If someone's smoking a dime bag of marijuana a day, how do we help them find a way to make that same dime bag last three days? So you have a conversation with them and say, okay, so I hear you. This is really helping your anxiety and it's helping you sleep at night. Um, There's some studies that may show there is a a risk to the developing fetus. How do we minimize the risk to the fetus? That's a harm reduction model. I'm wondering if Larissa and maybe Jerry can talk about, if you have a patient that you know is using marijuana, do we alert them to what sort of criminal justice things that might happen or what that's gonna look like in the NICU? Yeah, I always talk with my patients Speaking here is Jerry Woodworth. Jerry is an OB nurse at St. Luke's Support Clinic in Boise. That if they have a drug screen at the time of delivery, and when they come in to deliver and it's positive, even for THC, because we live in Idaho and it's illegal in Idaho, um, that that's an automatic referral to CPS, um, like it would be with any other illicit drug. That being said, my understanding is that if it's just marijuana, there's no other um, evidence of other drugs, generally CPS doesn't remove children for for that situation, but that's not a promise. That's not a guarantee. Um, So I always alert patients to that situation, let them know that, you know, they think that they're just using it to sleep or for their anxiety or whatever. you know, they're abstaining from all other substances, it, it still can cause uh, legal issues at the time of delivery. This is Larissa. I agree with what, what Jerry said. This is Larissa Janishek. Larissa is a neonatal nurse practitioner at the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit at St. Luke's Health System in Boise. Um, it's an automatic CPS referral, but I have never seen it pursued if that is the only substance and there is no other cps history for anything else i have never seen it pursued uh any more than a referral this is what it is they investigate that there's no other issues involved and then it's essentially dropped Mm -hmm. i've I've never seen anything else um in the treasure valley in that's correct Mm -hmm. at this time right in this moment in this second in this time. Um, I will have to say that I I just want to make sure that people do know that there's a difference between how breastfeeding is handled um, in the NICU and breast milk to the the, uh, neonate is handled up in the newborn nursery. Mom's breastfeed, it's not a a big deal or anything, but in the NICU, um, we do not 
it's really a legal issue because if we know that mom's positive and we know that THC is in the breast milk, we cannot legally as providers knowingly give an illegal substance to our patient. So if mom pumps and we're feeding the baby breast milk, that's us knowingly giving the, the neonate an illegal substance in this state. So that is why um, we have the mothers, if they are willing to um, continue to pump and then they need to provide uh, a negative urine tox, the mothers, uh, at least one, then if that's negative, we will allow the use of breast milk. And then we would uh, want another negative one week later and continue to use the breast milk or allow them to breastfeed. And Dr. Fox, how long could it take after use to get a negative urine tox? Yeah, so it could take up to a month. This is Larissa. Um, so it depends. It also just depends on what her use, you know, how often she uses is so it's all over the place. I've had moms come in and do a test five days after they've delivered and been positive and it's been negative or they have to go three weeks. But yes, I think up to a month is the, really the longest I've ever when talking to patients have heard that they've had to wait that long. Um, but it, it all depends on their use. Is it once a week? Is it every day? Is it, you know, and then again, if it's, you know, one puff off something, is it an edible? Is it, you know, it's, it's just so like she was talking about the research. It's so hard to know because the dosing is so all over the place. And the other piece is um, in addition to those elements that Larissa was mentioning, um, you have how much adipose tissue does the mother have? Um, a mother with more adipose tissue is going because it's lipophilic, fat loving, it will stay in the fat reserves. And so it stays in your system. So if you are very overweight and have been smoking um, for 10, 15 years, 10 times a day, um, you're positive. You're going to stay positive a lot longer potentially than someone who is, you know, stick thin, um, who tried it once at a party two weeks ago. So, um, and then there's the sensitivity of the tests. The tests these days are more and more sensitive uh, to picking things up. That again was Dr. Nicole Fox, psychiatrist at St. Luke's Health System in Boise, presenting marijuana use in the perinatal period. That lecture was recorded live as a part of Echo Idaho's 2021 Perinatal Substance Use Disorder series. If you'd like to watch the Zoom recording of that presentation, that video is currently available on the Echo Idaho YouTube channel, which you can access through our website, PowerPoint slide deck, as well as information about how to contact some of the organizations and services mentioned in that talk are available in our podcast show notes on our podcast podcast webpage www.uidaho.edu slash echo hyphen podcast. If you're interested in joining our free live echo sessions to receive continuing education credit, learn best practices, ask a question, or grow your community, 
please visit our website at www.uidaho.edu echo, where you can register to attend, sign up to receive announcements, donate, and find out more information about our programs. Season two of Something for the Pain is brought to you by Echo Idaho, supported by the Whammy Medical Education Program and the University of Idaho, and is made possible with funding provided by BJA, the Bureau of Justice Assistance. We here at Echo also want to hear your feedback. We welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions, and invite you to email us at echoidaho at uidaho.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to Something for the Pain using your podcast app. And if you have a moment, write us a review. Something for the Pain was supported by grant number 15PBJA21GG04557COAP, awarded by the Bureau of Justice Assistance. The Bureau of Justice Assistance is a component of the Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs, which also includes the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the National Institute of Justice, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, the Office for Victims of Crime, and the SMART Office. Points of view or opinion in this recording are those of the author and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. You can earn CE credit while you sit and eat your lunch. The contributing voices on today's episode were those of Nicole Fox, Stacy Seibe, Jerry Woodworth, Larissa Janishek, and Lachelle Smith. We'd also like to thank all of our listeners, without whom none of this would be possible. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. Together, well, you know what that spell.